a Bible, turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. This morning, Galatians chapter 3, I want to tell you a quick story as you're turning there or turning on your phone. Uh, about three weeks ago, I think it was, um, we got a phone call, maybe it was a text message from a local church here in town, and they were offering us uh, three wheelchairs and two walkers for people that need assistance in walking. And what was interesting about that, they were going to donate it to the Finding Hope Center. They said, could you use these? It's rare that we say no to like strange items like that because we don't know if somebody could use that stuff. But we took the items and I told Joe and I told uh, Jenny who, who directs the interior side of that. I said, somebody gave us these three wheelchairs and these two walkers. Like, I don't know if we're going to need these things, but let's just see. And they were both kind of like, we've never, three years that we've been doing furniture delivery and helping people, we've never given away a wheelchair and we've never given away a walker before. Check this out. So I jump on my uh, app on my phone called Nextdoor, which is like a neighborhood app. I don't know if some of y'all probably have that where you live. I jump on there and this, this lady comments, she says, I need a walker for my daughter for her friend. I'm like, I got two, let's see what happens here. So I message this lady and she says, oh my gosh, she shows up to the church like three or four days later. She says, check out this story. She said, my daughter lives in Houston, Texas, and her and her husband have been ministering to a homeless gentleman that lives there. So apparently this guy, he's a homeless guy, he had this walker, but the little clips on the front of the walker that help you adjust the height had busted. So that meant that the walker was now down here. If you can imagine this poor guy, this poor homeless guy, now they said he's literally walking around town like this because he needs the walker to assist him in walking. She said, my daughter went to Goodwills all across Houston, couldn't find a walker for this gentleman. And then she goes, she comes to Columbus visiting mom, tells mom the story. She said, we went to several Goodwills and we found one walker, but that walker that we bought, the wheels were busted on it and this guy deserves more than that. We shouldn't give him junk just because he's in need. She said, you guys commented from Living Hope that you had this walker. Y'all check this out. Maybe this isn't a big deal to you. I, I about took a lap around the room. You, through the Finding Hope Center, this past week gave a walker to a homeless guy in Houston, Texas. That's cool. You might leave here and, well, that doesn't matter. Look, in the kingdom of God, insignificant things are significant, right? Like, that's incredible to me. We're going to have somebody share a story with you at the end of our service, one of our interns, this past uh, Saturday, so yesterday, as we're delivering mattresses and this furniture to this lady's house, they go inside her home, get to pray with her, and share the gospel with her through the prayer. Did you know that you don't just have to tell somebody, like, hey, can I share Jesus with you? You can pray with them, and while you're praying, thank God for the fact that he came as a human. Thank God for the fact that he died on a cross for their sins. Thank God for the fact that he resurrected, and through his resurrection, we can have eternal life. And you can share the gospel, and the person might not even understand or realize that you're sharing the gospel with them. Woo! Someone better get me a towel. Hey, Galatians chapter 3, uh, we're in week 11 of our series called God's Space as we're just walking verse by verse through this book and it only gets better from here. Uh, we're almost closing out our halfway point in chapter 3 and uh, I, I want to read seven verses this morning starting in Galatians 3.19. If you'll stand with me in honor of reading God's word, and you guessed it, we're talking about the law again. <laughs> here we go. Paul says in verse 19, why then was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. The law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not just for one person alone, but God is one. Verse 21, is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. 
For if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. But the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. Verse 24, the law then was our guardian until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For through faith, I love this, you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much for your word. God, we celebrate. Lord, in our midst, you're doing so many cool things. God, even this morning, just stepping back and watching your activity that you give us the front row seat to see. God, would you give us ears to hear from you this morning? Lord, hearts, soft hearts. God, receptive hearts to understand Galatians 3 to put into practice the truth of Galatians 3. God, as we walk this out the rest of our week, we love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Move seated. Hey, what happens in the human mind when it's asked a question? Let me give you a couple examples of this. What is the best place on planet Earth to take a vacation? Don't shout it out. Some of you want to. What's the greatest movie that you've seen in your lifetime? Signs, anyways. If you've never seen Signs, you don't know. What is the best restaurant to visit in Columbus, Ohio? What is, what is the greatest animal to have as a pet? What's the best type of car that everybody should drive? Now think about this with me for a second. What happens in the human mind when it's asked a question? We answer it 100% of the time. Do you know, it's scientifically proven that any time you as a human being are asked a question, you will always, whether verbally or in your head, you will always answer that question. Even if the answer is, I don't know, I don't care, or I'm not going to answer you. In your head or verbally, human beings are wired in such a way, God made us this way, that we will always answer questions when we're asked them. Do you know why that is? Because human beings don't like to leave things unresolved. Ever thought about that? Imagine it as a circle, and this circle is being drawn all the way around. If somebody stops right here, there's something in the human mind that has to complete the circle. If there's a conflict that you're engaging in with somebody else, it's going to bug you and drive you crazy until there's resolution to the conflict. We love resolution. We love to close things up. If a door is left open, it drives us crazy, and we want to close it. Why? Because we love conclusion. We love when you can put a nice bow on top of something. And that's what Paul does here, finally, in Galatians 3 with the Galatians. As he's continuing to write this letter, he asks them two incredibly important questions. And what is Paul doing? He's forcing the Galatians to a conclusion. He has built such an argument up to this point, told them so many things in these first three chapters, and now through the use of rhetorical questioning, Paul says, all right, we're just going to put a bow on top of this, we're going to end this, we're going to draw the conclusion. I've got two questions for you to address today, and here's the two. If the law of Moses, which we have talked about now for ten straight weeks, if the law of Moses is incapable of making me right with God, we've addressed that so many times, then what's the point of it? If the law of Moses cannot make me right with God, then what's the point of the law? And then Paul asks them a second question. 
If we understand that question, then how does the law correlate with the promise of God that right standing with him comes through faith? Friends, these two questions that Paul asked the Galatians and he's asking us today, if we get these things right, Galatians is going to make sense to us. The Old Testament is going to make sense to you. One of the questions I get so often as a pastor when I'm counseling somebody or they're just trying to understand the scripture, they're just like, I don't understand the first five books of the Bible. All these rules and regulations that God set forth, like, what's the point of those things? Why are they even there? Because I'm a New Testament Christian this side of the cross. Why do those things even matter? Congratulations. Welcome to church. Hey there online. You're going to know today. I, th I think it's cool. Hey, two questions. Why was the law given? I want to address these. Take notes. This is going to be helpful. Right out of the gate. First question, verse 19. Why was the law given? You can hear the pause in Paul's voice. I almost picture him maybe dictating this, saying this out loud, and he's like, yes, I need to write that down. Why then was the law given? If he would have been there in person, I can imagine him maybe standing before this group of Galatians believers. Paul stands there and he goes, all right, guys, I've said so much up to this point. Got a question for you. Why then was the law given? And then he would have paused. Paul would have looked at his sundial watch there for a second. He'd have paused there and he would have allowed them maybe a moment to formulate a conclusion. Why? Because that's what the human mind does when it's asked a question. And right when they maybe get to that conclusion, Paul says, all right, the question was rhetorical. I'm going to give you the answer. Here it is. The law of Moses was given for the sake of transgressions. Verse 19. The law of Moses was given for the sake of transgressions. Now, what does that mean? You might be reading that this morning. You may have heard those words off my tongue, and you're like, what does that mean for the sake of transgressions? Let me give you two understandings to help us understand what Paul is saying here. First, the purpose of the law. Here's why it was given. We've said this before, but we're going to echo it again. The law was given to reveal and expose the sin that was already on the human heart. The law was given to show and reveal and expose the sin that was already on the human heart. Now track with me here for just a second. I want to make sure you understand this. Before the law, right? So the law shows up in the book of Exodus, but we have from Adam all the way to Moses and all these individuals in between. Before the law was actually given, did human beings still sin? Yes, if you say no, we need to have a conversation after church, okay? Human beings still sinned. Did they still disobey God? Yes. How so if there wasn't a law? How do you disobey a law that doesn't technically exist at that point? Because from Adam to Moses, there was no written law that the people had. How do you disobey a law that's not written down? Let me give you three things to think about, and this is going to make sense in the context of what's going on here. First, human beings were guilty of disobeying what's known as the general revelation of God. Romans chapter 1 talks about this. Let me explain to you general revelation. Go outside this evening, watch a sunset. You'll know there's a God. Go outside this evening to the side of my house where I have carpenter bees. You watch bees interact with each other, you'll know there's a God, and then you'll ask why God made them. <laughs> Simply go and go to Hocking Hills next weekend and observe a waterfall. Go out this evening at 11 o'clock after the sun has set and the sky is pitch black and look up and see the vastness of the stars. You will know very clearly that there is a God and His creation screams that truth. Friends, I don't care. Listen, 
If you look at the, the, just the vastness of creation and in any way say, eh, that happened by chance, that seems wild to me. Because I, I believe, and, and we could have this conversation, that creation is, is screaming that there is a creator. His thumbprint is everywhere. Let me, let me show you a couple of verses in Psalm chapter 19. These are not going to be on the screen. I want to, I want to read these to you. Listen to what, what David says as this song that he writes uh, to be sung in the temple. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The expanse of the heavens proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day, what are the heavens doing? They're, they're pouring out speech. Night after night, they're communicating his knowledge. There's no speech. There are no words. There is no voice where his creation isn't screaming about him. You see, the message that creation screams has gone out to the whole earth and their words to the ends of the world. Creation screams that we have a creator, God, and to deny that is to disobey him. That's just the reality. That's the general revelation of God. Second, human beings before the law was written were guilty of disobeying the rule of God that is on the human conscience. Romans chapter 2 very clearly articulates this, starting in verse 14. So when the Gentiles who do not by nature have the law and do what the law demands, they are the law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. How so? They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. You know what that's called? The human conscience. I don't have to tell you that murdering someone is wrong. You don't have to tell somebody that lying is wrong. God has placed in us the conscience. Look at what he goes on to say. Their conscience confirms this. They're competing thoughts, either accusing or excusing them on the day when God judges what people have kept in secret according to my gospel through Jesus Christ. What Paul say there? God has given you as a human being a moral compass, a sense of morality. And when you and I choose to disobey that, turn from it and not follow it, that's called sin. We know right from wrong and good from evil as humans. God has placed that on us. Third, before the law was written. We're not sure to what degree, but it's likely from Adam to Abraham that there was some sort of oral tradition passed along among God's people. Pastor Joe and I were talking about that this week. Think of the story of Cain and Abel and the sacrifices they offered to God. One of the, the, uh, the livestock and one of the fruit. God accepted one and not the other. How did they know to do that? How did they know to make those sacrifices to the Lord unless there was something that was passed down to them through their forefathers that told them that's what you did, that that's what we do as followers of Yahweh? What happens in Exodus then? Now with the introduction of the law of Moses that was passed down through the Jewish people, through the nation of Israel, God sets forth a very clear written standard for all of human creation of who he is, how righteous and holy he is, and what he requires of us. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt who our God is now. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt what he requires of his creation. How do we know that? Through the law of Moses. Let me give you an illustration to hopefully understand this. I love stories. Um, me and my wife just bought a house back in December. Buying a house has been wonderful and the worst. Um, and it's the worst because the honey-do list is literally forever. Okay? It just hasn't stopped. And Liz has discovered online auctions. So things that used to cost several hundred dollars now cost like $3. So we have lots of them in our garage that I have to install in the house. It's, it's wonderful. I, I love it. Not. <laughs> and 
Imagine with me that today after church, I go home, and my wife says these words to me. She says, hey, next weekend, next Saturday when you're off, I need you to do some stuff around the house. I need you to clean the garage. I got two new bathroom lights I need you to install. I need you to go out back and trim the pine trees. I need you to install the new toilet that I got. I need you to put up the new mailbox and do all of those things by this coming weekend, this coming Saturday. Imagine with me that Saturday comes around. She told me what she wanted me to do, but Saturday comes around and I only do four of the six things that she asked of me. Would she have the right to be irritated with me? All the women say yes, all the husbands say no, right? She would, because she told me, this is what I want you to do. This is what I need you to do. She would have a right to be irritated if I didn't do what she asked. What if I pleaded ignorance? Does it make her any less mad? No. I could say, well, I forgot. I didn't realize. I didn't know. Check it out. She already told me, though, and it's my fault if I didn't follow through with it. You ever notice this, that if you plead ignorance with the law of the United States, you're still guilty? Try it next time you get pulled over and tell the cop, I didn't realize I was speeding. He's going to say, don't care. Here's your ticket. That's on me, not him, because he told me. It's on me, not her, because she told me what she wanted me to do. But here's how this scenario changes. Let's imagine that after church today, Liz asks me to do those same six things, but this time she doesn't just speak it to me, she writes it down for me. She gives me a list to follow. Yet I still only do four of the six things that she required of me. Does she have the right to be irritated with me? Absolutely, because she wrote it down this time. Friends, that's what's going on with the law. Before the law was written for us in Exodus, we're still without excuse. Because God's holy and righteous standard has been set from eternity past, and uh, like it or not, we're still bound to it. We're guilty whether we like it or not. But when the law is written, now we're really without excuse because God has set forth His standard. So what does the law do in us? Now that we see it and we understand who God is, it exposes our hearts. Did you know this morning that you're a sinner? I can prove it to you in the Word of God. Such an encouraging message. It exposes my sin. Here's the second one. The law, notice what he said there in that, that verse there. Uh, the law uh, was written for the sake of transgression, so it exposes, but then it also provokes my sinfulness. What does that mean? Romans 7, verse 5, if you want to turn there. I'm going to show you a verse that Paul wrote later to the church in Rome. Romans 7, verse 5, for when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, check this out, the sinful passions aroused through the law were working in us to bear fruit that we, I'm sorry, let me read that one more time. Verse seven. He says, for when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions aroused through the law were working in us. And then here's this key phrase at the end, to bear fruit for death. Ooh. How was the law multiplied? How did it, provo was it provoked in me? You know what the natural human response of, of us is? Is that when we are confronted with truth, typically we try to stand up against it. You're not going to tell me what to do. Don't tell me how to live. Don't expose that thing in me. Let, me. let me give you another example. How many of you have ever been driving in a car with a sibling in the back seat and you fought with them? I've got two siblings, personally. Here's typically what happened in our car. My mom would turn back. Man, when your mom raised your hand, you just knew. It's like, help me, Jesus. My mom would turn back. She'd cross her arm over her face like this, and you knew. It was like, I'm going to go see Jesus here in just a moment. And she'd say, I swear if you touch your sister again, it's going to be the end of you. What did we always do? You ready? You're going to know it right in the moment you see this. 
I'm not touching her. Didn't we? And then what would your sibling do? Mom, mom, he's touching me, he's touching me, he's touching me. No, I'm not, no, I'm not, no, I'm not. Mom, crank her hand back again. Aaron, I swear, you touch your sister again, you're done. And what would we do? We'd touch him. Why is that? Because when we're confronted with things that call out our sinful actions, the natural bent of the human heart is not to stop. It's to do it more. That's how we are wired because of the sin nature in us. That's why Proverbs 22.15 says that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. What do you have to do to get the foolishness out? You've got to discipline it. We're, we're naturally foolish humans and we carry it into our adult life. And when we're confronted with truth, rather than repent, often we say, don't tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want because I'm the boss of my life. When confronted with what's wrong, we simply desire to do it more. That's what Paul's telling us when he says that the law was added for the sake of transgression. So think through this. If the law exposes sin and it provokes sin, what's the point of it for me now? As a follower of Jesus, even pre-cross, it was meant ultimately to point to the seed. Verse 19 is what Paul says. The law exposed my need for Jesus and it screams at me, Aaron, you are a sinner. God is so abundantly holy, and there's nothing you can do to bridge the gap between the two of you. You need a Savior named Jesus. Jesus will bridge that gap for you. For us, it's that promise of that Savior who has already showed up. For Abraham and everybody pre-law, it was the promise of the Savior who was going to come. But the point of the law, Paul tells us in verse 19, is it pointed us to Jesus. Now look at the end of verse 19 and verse 20. You're going to see an interesting phrase there. I'm going to read this again just so we're all on the same page. He says, The law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. Now a mediator is not just for one person alone, but God is one. You read that and you're like, what, what does that mean? You ready? I'm going to tell you. I don't know. That's what's crazy. There's so many different things you can read on the end of verse 19, beginning of verse 20. And most Bible teachers would be like, we have no idea what that means. Some will tell you that that passage points to Acts chapter 7 when Stephen is standing up before the Pharisees and the Sadducees and Paul and he's giving this gospel discourse. He makes this statement in Acts chapter 7 that the law was delivered through angels to men from God. That's maybe, that's what Paul's talking about. It's one of those rare instances we see that. Some people say, no, 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 it just points back to the Exodus when God would occasionally leave the Israelites in the care of an angel in the wilderness. We, we really don't know what it means, but here's what I do know. Pastor Joe reminded me of this on Thursday. It's in the Bible, therefore it's true. God said it, so we believe it. Ta-da. What does it mean, Aaron? I don't know. You say, wait a second, there's stuff in the Bible we can't explain? <laughs> this must be the first time you've read it. Think about it this way. I thought this was an interesting way to think about it. Imagine um, that this room encompassed, this one space that we're all in right now, encompassed all of the knowledge of the universe that our infinite God possesses. All of this right here in this room. It fills up this entire space. You know how much you know personally? If this whole space that we're sitting in right now um, encompassed all of God's knowledge, you know how much you know about a granule of sand? In the vastness of the mind of God, we got about a granule of sand worth of knowledge. That's about it. When we understand that, we start to realize there's some things God will say, do, be written about, 
that we're just not going to be able to explain, and that's totally okay, because he is infinite and we're finite. Let me give you a, a quote from Francis Chan. Some of you all love him. Francis Chan said this, can you worship a God who isn't obligated to explain his actions or mind to you? Huh. God owes me nothing. There will be things about him I don't get. He's God, I'm not. I'm clay, he's potter, period. Then what does he go on to say? Could it be in your arrogance that makes you think God owes you an explanation? It's okay sometimes to approach the scriptures and say, I don't know, and that's okay. I heard it put one time, a God I can can explain is not a God I should worship. If you can carve out a dog from a piece of wood and worship that, you made it, don't worship it. I'm going to worship a God who's infinite, alpha and omega, beginning and the end, surpasses all time, control of all things. That's our God. Sometimes in the scriptures, we're not going to understand everything he said. Aaron's going to jump off his soapbox. Question number two. Is the law contrary to God's promises? If it exposes and provokes sin in my life, how does this all fit together? This is a big one. We've covered this from various angles. I want to make sure we we understand how Paul keeps pressing us in on this. Now first, understand, we've seen this over and over, that the conclusion of the Judaizers and these Gentile believers in Galatia, they're saying, okay, if the law isn't needed for righteousness and we only get right with God by grace through faith, then the law has to be opposed to God's promise of salvation. Somehow these, these, they can't work together. They don't seem to be in harmony. And what does Paul say in verse 21? He says, no, 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 absolutely not. That's not true. He says, yes, the law does not give you life. You will not find salvation. You will not find right standing with God through your own self-effort. It will never happen. If you ask somebody, if you stood before God, how would you know he would let you into heaven? And they said, I'm a good person. You'd have to look back and say, that doesn't matter. That won't get you anywhere in the kingdom of God. So how does this all work together? Verse 22, Paul says, The Scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Christ Jesus to all those who believe. Two words to sum up these last couple verses, prisoner and promise. Friends, if it was based on the law alone, you and I are simply prisoners to the law of God. What does the law do? It just points out how sinful I am and how sinful you are. It shows me the depth of my depravity. That's all it does. Because the law shows me how holy my God is. And when I stand in comparison to him, I am simply a filthy rag that deserves to be in the drain that is heaven's toilet, maybe. That's who I am compared to my God. And the law simply reminds us of that. Notice what he says in verse 23. We were confined under the law, imprisoned. That that phrase there, confined, means to be bound up on all sides with no way or escape. It's this picture of the law literally being around you and pointing down at you going, you are not good and you are not holy and you are completely sinful. You are imprisoned under that. A couple years ago, Pastor Joe and I developed a friendship with a prisoner up in the Marion County Correctional Institution. You say, how did that happen? That's a long story, but it seems to be the story of how our ministry... So Joe and I would go up there and visit this guy every couple times a month at that prison. I'll be honest with you, I'm not made for prison. I remember I had to do all this paperwork to go in there. The first day I go there, I was scared out of my mind. I have no plans to ever spend the rest of my life in prison, in case you all were wondering. And I remember going in there, I pulled in, I locked myself in my car. You go inside, you put everything in a locker. You then you have to, I mean, literally, you can't have anything on you. You can't, I, if I remember, I like, can't even have a belt kind of a thing. You just go in with nothing. 
And after sitting there for about a half hour, they call your name. You go through this metal detector to make sure you got nothing else on you. You go through this first set of doors. They close the door behind you. They turn the latch. Boom, you're locked in. Man, what a feeling. You go down this hallway, and there's another door. They press this buzzer. They let you through that second door. You walk through. Boom, pull the latch. You're stuck. And friends, I can't describe the feeling, unless you've experienced this personally, of standing out in a prison courtyard, seeing these concrete block walls surrounding you, these metal chain link fence with these just stacks and stacks of razor sharp barbed wire all around you. And I can remember the first time that I stood in that courtyard to go to the building where our friend was located, standing in that courtyard and literally pausing for a second and looking around and going, man, if they don't want to let me out, I'm tough out of luck. I'm stuck. And those walls, you know what they do in a prison? They remind you you're stuck. Because when you look up at those barbed wire fences and you look up at those concrete block walls, you say to yourself, even if you're not there to be a prisoner, you say to yourself, there's nothing I could do to get over those. They are built in such a way that I am completely stuck here and I have no hope. That's the illustration Paul gives us of the law. You're imprisoned. You're stuck. And there's nothing you can do to escape it. The law surrounds you, and it calls out your depravity. But notice what he says in verse 24, and we're almost done. He says in verse 24 that in that scenario, the law is our guardian. I think we, we read that word guardian, I know I do at least, and I view that as a positive term. Like that's a positive thing, and it is. The law is a, a positive thing for us, but in Jewish culture, this was an interesting um, dynamic. This was an interesting position. This was a, a trusted slave of a family. And their role in the life of the, the children of the family was not to educate the child. The role of this slave, this guardian in Jewish culture, was to simply be, uh, care for the physical and moral well-being of a kid. It was to discipline them, to point out the things they've done wrong. You guys maybe remember the, the stories, maybe you experienced it, the school teachers when, at school when a kid would do wrong and they'd beat the tar out of you with the ruler. Uh, that was a guardian. The guardian simply pointed out what you did wrong. Maybe we could call it the prison guard. The prison guard inside the walls with you saying, you're going nowhere. You're stuck here, buddy. You have no hope. So by itself, we're imprisoned to the law and we're hopeless. But Paul doesn't leave us there. Listen to this. Throughout these verses, you notice what's sprinkled through here? Look at verse 19, the seed. Look at verse 21, God's promises. Look at verse 22, the promise of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 23, the coming faith that would be revealed. Look at verse 24, until Christ comes. Look at verse 26, that we're rescued through faith in Jesus Christ. Sprinkled in the reminder of the prison that the law puts us in is Jesus. That although we're, we're hopeless, we remember Jesus paid our sin debt. That although we're hopeless, we remember that Jesus met the demands of the law for us. That although we're hopeless, we remember that Jesus rescues us from our sinfulness. The law by itself imprisons us. But when you understand the law in conjunction with the promise of Jesus, you learn to appreciate Jesus that much more. What he rescued me from and what he rescued me to himself. Let me paint you one picture on our board. And then I want to add to our illustration from last week, and then we'll pray. 
We said last week how, how this all fit together. We said Abraham, everybody in the Old Testament, what did they do? They looked forward in faith to the promise of a Messiah, Jesus, the pinnacle of all human history. We said, you and I, what do we do? As, as Jesus followers now, we look back at the promise that was made of Jesus. It's, it's the same thing. It says in Genesis 15, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. We read in Romans chapter 9 down here, for it is by grace we've been saved through faith, not by our own self-effort, but by believing what Jesus did on the cross. Same thing, just different sides of the story. Both sides look forward in faith. But how does the law tie into all of this? I thought about this this week, and I, this was helpful for me. Imagine the law is like a spotlight. And when God introduced the law, it was a spotlight down on all these Old Testament saints, showing how sinful that they were. What is it doing? It's exposing their sin. Exposing how sinful they are. And what was it to provoke them to do? We need a Savior named Jesus. We need a Savior because we're so sinful. What does the law do for you and I this side of the cross? Read it and understand who our God is. Understand how holy He is and what will it do in our lives? It will expose how sinful we are and how much we need Jesus. Then what did Jesus say? Don't think that I came to destroy the law. No, 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 no. I came to fulfill it. Jesus, what does the law do for Jesus? It shows us how holy He was. It shows us how holy He is. It shows us how He meet, met the demands of God. It shows us how He is God and how you and I can look to Him as our Savior because He fulfilled the demands of the law that exposed our sinfulness. Period. Jesus is the Savior. Friends, you see how this all ties together in one big story? God's rules never changed. It's always been Jesus. He's always been the plan. God simply is exposing sin so that we understand the desperate need that you and I have for a Savior, and we know His name to be Jesus. Hey, let me share the gospel with you real quick. If you're a, a, not a Christian this morning, I want you to understand that your sin has separated you from God. The Bible is abundantly clear in that Romans 6.23, for all have sinned. If you're breathing and there's breath in your lungs, you are considered a sin, sinner before a holy God. That's just truth. And the worst news is, is that through our own self-righteous efforts, no matter how hard I try, there's nothing I can do to be right with God. Period. I can't. Self-effort only leads to separation from God. That's the worst news in the world. But here's the good news. That at the cross, Jesus did what I couldn't do. He met the demands of God through the law. He took my sin debt that I owed God on Himself, and He died. He paid for it. He appeased the wrath of God against me as a sinful human being. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 says that the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. Man, that's good news. What's the result? The best news is that Jesus came back from the grave three days later, securing eternal life for you so that you could have your sins forgiven and have an eternity in a home called heaven. Romans 6.23 calls this the free gift of God known as eternal life in Christ Jesus. If you've never given your heart to Jesus or you're unsure, can I invite you to do that this morning? I'm going to pray with us all right now. And if you'd like to do that, pray that in silence of your heart. You can stand and scream it for all I care. I don't care. Let's just do it. Father, thank you so much for this day. Father, as we get ready to sing your praises here in just a moment, I want to pray for my friends that maybe don't know you yet. God, that in this moment they would understand the depth of their sinfulness and their desperate need for a Savior. 
named Jesus. That God, they wouldn't try to be right with you because of what they could do. God, we know that will always fall short. But they would ask Jesus to forgive their sins and they would trust him for their salvation. God, for my friends that are Christians this morning already, God, I pray that you remind them of that time where they started walking with Jesus. God, that in this moment as we sing, that we would be so thankful and grateful for the sacrifice you made on our behalf on that cross and that it would move us to walk in obedience. God, thanks so much for your word. Thank you so much for what you've taught us thus far in this book. I pray that it changes us from the inside out. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.